0: As you get to hear the voices of the saints watching, washing over you, it's, uh, it's awesome. Uh, well, my name's Josh. It's great to be with you. It's great to be with you uh, this morning. Special shout-out to college students coming back. We got college kids in the house here. Yes? Calvin in the house. Anybody Calvin? Woo! That was louder than last year. I feel like Calvin is always very reserved. Cornerstone, Youth Camp, College. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> well, it's great to, great to have you guys with us. Um, today we're going to talk about the topic of vocation. It's Labor Day, and so we thought we'd take a minute uh, to talk about our work, our labors. Um, if you've been around Redemption City Church much, you know that our, our, uh, our bread and butter, our sweet spot, is just to pick a book of the Bible and go straight through it. But we want to, on these special Sundays, kind of take, take a minute and address the topic of life and teach what the Bible has to say about that topic. Uh, to begin uh, our, our time, I want to invite Reese up to uh, share a little bit about his, uh, his vocation, his work, and his labors. Grab that one. Try that one. Is it on? There we go. Well, this is Reese. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Reese is a member of our church, dear friend of mine. Uh, why don't you tell us what you what you do with with most of your minutes and hours for
1: work? I am a wedding photographer. Um, so, last night or this morning, I actually just got back at 30 from Traverse <laughs> City. Um, so that's what that's what I do a lot of my work in.
0: Awesome. And uh, how how do you see your vocation in relation to your work?
1: So I had, to, I had to kind of look these two up, if I'm being honest, the difference between work and vocation. But um, I think I come to the conclusion that my vocation is to serve couples, to serve families um, in a way in which I try to show God's common grace to them. A lot of people that I photograph are unbelievers. And so um, just trying to show them the love, the support, the friends, the family that they've been given, um, that none of it is really earned they didn't do anything to be born into those families and so if i can reflect that to them uh, just hoping to kind of speak into what a gift life is love is marriage um, family and just again showing god's common grace Uh, tim keller in his book every good endeavor kind of talks about how we have too thin of a view of god's common grace so i feel like that's one area i can speak into especially in the, the secular workplace
0: awesome so as you're serving couples uh, with all the potential drama around wedding, do you, do you have any examples of like what that service has looked like or areas where you felt like God was stretching you as you tried to serve, serve yeah. people?
1: Yeah, so a lot of people ask me if I deal with a lot of bridezillas. <laughs> um, fortunately, I don't. Um, my couples are, are typically very sweet, and I'm thankful for that. That's God's grace towards me. Um, but yeah, I think there are times where you get people on wedding days that are really anxious and stirred up and just trying to step into those places and remain as calm and, and confident as possible and just encouraging people um, through, through the wedding day, I think, is, is really cool. And then, you know, I've had some instances where after the wedding day, people ask for a ton of extra stuff, and it's a lot of extra work for me. But um, just having to kind of, like, swallow my pride and say, you know, does this matter in light of eternity? And what, what picture can I give them if I just do it and serve them? Um, I have three kids, a fourth on the way. And so my time is sometimes limited. <laughs> but, you know, I try my best to really serve these couples as well as I can. Um, sometimes that's hard if I'm being honest. And that's, that, that stretches me for sure. Um, but I look to our king um, you know, you have God incarnate in Jesus. And so he comes down and he says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So that's a verse that's kind of like always coming into my mind as I think about, um, you know, being in a service industry.
0: So good. Thanks, Reese. Yep. Thanks, Josh. Put your hands together for Reese. <laughs> I'm invite our scripture reader up. Miss Kate Termato. Thanks, Kate. Well, I spent a little time uh, at Calvin this week at the Church College Fair. It had me thinking back through my college years, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, And if you're starting your sophomore year, I don't want to scare you, but it it reminded me that my sophomore year of college was probably one of the darkest times of my life. Uh, I was deep into my plan that I had decided on, as a child that I wanted to be a, a, a surgeon, a doctor. So I was all in on the whole pre-med thing. And my fall semester was great in that sense. Like I was in a deep flow state. I had my favorite spot in Brill Science Library, deep into O'Kim, just reached this like meditative state of, uh, of, of studying. And at the end of the semester, I had secured a research position for the next summer. I got accepted into this like medical fraternity thing and had straight A's. And I thought, yes. I think it's happening. I think it's actually... I, I might actually make it to be a doctor. Uh, but then something happened over Christmas break where I just started to feel kind of how hollow it all uh, seemed to me. Like like something was missing. I had been cranking towards this goal, but felt like my relationships and just everything, like something was, something was not right. But at that time... So I started exploring, but at that time, I, I was following Jesus, but I, I just... Was, it was not very well formed in how I understood reality and how all the aspects of being a human fit into this, this life with God that we're called into in the gospel. And I was into a college ministry that was really, really big on evangelism. And, and somehow I, I kind of absorbed the, this concept that the reason I was on the earth was to tell people about Jesus. Like the, the, the actual moments when I was sharing the gospel, like that was what it was all about. I'm not necessarily saying that's what I was taught, but somehow, like, I absorbed that. Uh, and guys, I just like collapsed under the, these like con- conflicting ideas. Like, I needed to sleep and eat and study Ochim o- for four or five hours a day, uh, but I wasn't doing what I was here for. Like, for that matter, how do I how do I brush my teeth or eat dinner with people that already know Jesus? And I just crumpled under, under these conflicting ideas. Like, how, how could I justify spending hours at the library if there's people I should be sharing the gospel with? And uh, I just kind of got stuck in that and fell into a deep pit and just, like, quit. It was like a, a tale of two semesters in my sophomore year where I think I, like, barely eked out a 3.0 and uh, just withdrew from, like, everything, like, bare minimum. It was It was not pretty. As I look back on that time of my life, uh, a lot of that uh, confusion and just depression was because I did not have a biblical understanding of vocation. There's a lot of ways to think about vocation, a lot of really good books out there, but I think the, the question or the questions underneath the entire discussion of vocation is, is why are we here? Why, why did God create us and put us on the earth? What am I supposed to do with the actual minutes and hours of my life on the earth? What am I called to be and do as, in general as an image bearer of God, uh, as a human generally, and then specifically as Josh? That's what, that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, to start, let's define our terms. Vocation comes from the, the Latin word vocatio, which means Calling which shows us something really important right from the get-go is that it, it's something that, that comes to us from outside of us. It's an external thing, an external factor. Uh, and, and then a, a helpful way to think about it is whatever you do to produce good in the world, which if you're listening is clearly much bigger than just your job or your career, uh, which is kind of what we would do for a paycheck. And then work distinct from a job or a career is, is what you do with the actual minutes and hours of your time here on earth. So maybe it's being uh, paid in a job of being a doctor or a teacher or communications director or bathroom remodeler, or maybe your work is, is unpaid, like being a mom or caring for an elderly parent. Maybe your work is sitting quietly in a nursing home praying for people and listening carefully to God so that when people come to visit you, you have an edifying word to to build them up with. The two things we're going to look at today is a a biblical theology of vocation and work, uh, at least a very survey-level one. And then we're going to look at a practical tool for how you can explore and embrace your vocation, whether you're already deep into it, uh, how to have renewed clarity with that, or if you're starting out or... If feeling like you're in a place where you need some change, um, how you can uh, grow in clarity with that. And the main idea I, I want us to see in, in God's story of redemption is that his story of, or as we walk through the biblical theology, is his, his story of redemption moves forward through your vocation in the world of work. The story of redemption, both in our own souls and in the world at large, moves through real ordinary Jesus followers embracing their vocation, the God-given reason why you are on the earth. That's not to uh, belittle or minimize church world or what we do here. I mean, obviously, I love the church, and I'm giving my life to serving the church, but I think we'll see as we walk through God's story of redemption where so much of the action happens. So let's dive in. Starting on page one of your Bibles, verse one of your Bibles. The first thing we see when we open up God's word is... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the first thing we see about God is that he is the creator and he works. He's the source of everything and that he brought everything about through working. In six days, he works, as we heard Kate read, and then we get a seventh day of rest which we talked about back in July, this idea of Sabbath. And the six-in-one rhythm is so profound. It's woven into the fabric of the universe, where we we work and we rest. And the ratio is so important. What does the ratio tell us about God's posture towards us as humans in relation to our work? Next, we see God create humans. Chapter 1, verse 26, where it says, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. So God creates humanity in his image and does what? gives them work to do. He gives them dominion. He gives them responsibility over his creation, which makes sense. If we are made in the image of God, we are his image bearers, then we would also work like the God we were made in the image of. We would work by creating things out of his creation to shape and order and cultivate his creation. And then God flushes out our vocation even further <clears throat> in what is often called the creation mandate in verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we have a mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to cultivate the earth, subdue the earth uh, and and reign over it as God's uh, representatives. God could have created the earth fully cultivated, full with, with cities, and tons of people and tools and infrastructure and all that stuff. But instead, God created a lush garden, rich with incredible natural resources. And then He just put two little image bearers in there and said, Get to work. Be fruitful and multiply. I just want to affirm you as your pastor. This church is very good at, doing, at fulfilling that command. You guys are a fruitful bunch, so many babies. Uh, But that is work. That is us participating in our calling as humans. And then we subdue and we cultivate the earth. We make it more fruitful, more ordered, more productive. The perfect, beautiful creation, the Garden of Eden, was created in such a way that there was work for us to do in order to cultivate it. Now, important question. In the story of Scripture, are we before or after the fall? Before or after sin is introduced into the world. Before. Our work, our vocation, the creation mandate is God's good, perfect design. We were created to work and cultivate and innovate and order God's creation according to his personality, to his character with kindness and gentleness. Work is not a result of sin. Part of the curse of sin is that brokenness comes into the world and and after the fall, work becomes toil, there's chaos and conflict, it becomes harder, we eat by the sweat of our brow, and then our hearts get twisted. So instead of seeing work flowing out of our identity as image bearers of God, as God's creatures and beloved children, you know, we now are tempted to build Tower of Babels that show how great we are. We are tempted to, to hoard resources and stockpile things to make ourselves feel safe through our work. But work in and of itself is God's design. It's good and foundational to how God created you to live as a human. Now, as the story of redemption continues throughout the Old Testament, we see two very interesting things develop side by side. On the one hand, we have the development of the temple, this holy place, the holy of holies, where God's presence dwells on the earth, where Priests lead God's people in worshiping and proclaiming and rehearsing the truth of who God is, what he's doing, and how we can participate in the story of redemption. The temp- temple is central to the life of God's people throughout the Old Testament. Much in the same way, the church is central to the life of God's <clears throat> people in the New Testament. In our day and age, not necessarily like this building specifically, but the, the gathered, worshiping, fellowshipping body of a body of Christ in a time and place. But the interesting thing is that when you look at Scripture, at the story of Scripture, is that while the temple is, in some sense, the center of the redemption story all throughout the Old Testament, like the churches today, the action of the redemption story is almost never centered on the temple. It's not the world of priests and pastors it's the normal environments of normal people where they work and live and engage with the world. So let's do, let's do a drive-by of just some of the stories from the Old Testament of, of kind of the, how the story moves through particular characters in their lives. First, pick a place to start. I had to cut a lot out. Uh, Joseph, sold into slavery to Egypt, a pagan land. And then he works really hard, and he moves up in Potiphar's house to to manage the entire estate. Next, he gets promoted even higher to become chief of staff of the entire nation, second in command only to Pharaoh himself. And through Joseph's work in a pagan society, running a pagan kingdom, God protects his people from famine and allows them to greatly increase in Egypt. Moses spends 40 years in the desert tending sheep. Just a dude with a record, punching the clock, doing menial tasks, caring for dumb animals for decades. And then he sees a burning bush and is used by God to liberate his people from slavery. We see, David, who's just a baby brother, Forgotten in the field with sheep, and then he becomes a musician, booking gigs at the palace, and then he becomes the king himself, overseeing a nation. We see Ruth, a single woman, a widow in a patriarchal society with almost no options, trying to be faithful to her depressed mother-in-law, trying to make ends meet, gleaning wheat, and forge a way forward. And she becomes mentioned in the family line of Jesus Esther in in a king's court in city hall of the godless Persian empire as a means of preventing the slaughter of God's people. Nehemiah climbing the ranks in Babylon in the executive court, gaining favor with the king and being able to return to rebuild the walls of God's holy city. And Jesus, what did God in the flesh do for 30 out of 33 years of his life? He worked as a carpenter. He was a shop assistant in his dad's small business in a small town. In Luke 4, when Jesus stands up in the synagogue of his hometown of Nazareth and he reads the scroll of Isaiah and he proclaims himself as the awaited king, the Messiah, the hope for all the nations, he was doing it in front of people who had seen him as a boy grow up, who had only seen him doing manual labor, helping his dad as a carpenter. What does this show us about who God is? That God, the creator, when he came to earth in the flesh, chose to spend the majority of his time doing normal work among normal people. What does this mean for your work out in the world? How might Jesus' life or king's life on the earth dignify the simple daily tasks of diapers and TPS reports and mixing tiling mud and organizing spreadsheets? We see the places where he did his most intense ministry, his most like, intense discipleship with his disciples was, was largely out in the world, around a table, just walking between towns, being interrupted as he's trying to do something. Sure, he taught in, te- in temples or synagogues and all that, but the, the space where he did his main ministry was out in the world. What I hope we see is, is that, friends, the, the minutes... In hours of your days, of the time you have on this earth, outside of the gathering of the saints, is so valuable, so precious in the eyes of God. It's not tangential, it's not something to just get through. And the, as you, you think about the relationship between the church uh, and, and our life together as, as the people of God, and then our life not together, out in the world, gathered and scattered, uh, is the relationship I, I I long to see. Is that the, the gathering and fellowship and worship of the saints would would so form us into the image of Jesus that we go out, we scatter as little Jesuses, empowered by the Holy Spirit, narrators of God's story of redemption. People so formed by God's story of redemption that we show an alternative way live in, in the, the little things that we do, the normal things that we do in an alternative way to be a mom or an accountant or a social worker an alternative way that is so different that it begs the question why? how? and then we get to say let me tell you about my king let me tell you the greatest story every to- ever told let me tell you about how I found out that, that, that I was worse than I ever imagined but more loved than I ever thought possible there you have it a telling of the story of redemption through the lens of work the action of the kingdom coming through normal people in the normal environments of their lives as a redeemed child of God joining God in his work that he's doing through your work now let's talk about our specific vocation what are some some biblical principles like where do we go from here If, if my work is important like do I just pick any job and just do it? How do I decide what to do? What are some, some biblical guidelines that can guide how we think about work and what we do with the minutes and hours of our time on earth? I got a little crazy with charts and graphs this week, so in, indulge me. But I, I'm creating what, I, what I'm calling a vocation, vocational pyramid, sort of a graphic that moves us from, from God and the truth of scripture and gives us some rails on, on as we narrow down Uh, and get closer to clarity around what our specific vocation might be. The foundation of the pyramid is God, is the gospel. The first thing is foundational to our calling and identity is who we are in God. If you've trusted in Jesus, repented of sin, and you call him Lord of your life, he's not just your savior, he's also your Lord, then the most true thing about you is that you are God's beloved son or daughter called back into a relationship with him like Adam and Eve had before the fall in the garden, being with him and working with him under his loving rule and reign. We see this beautiful fatherly blessing uh, in the life of Jesus. Uh, Before he had begun his ministry, before he had done any miracles or preached any sermons, he was baptized and God's voice spoke over his life. This is my son, Whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Before you do anything, before any contribution to God's family business of redemption, in Christ you are immovably God's beloved child whom he loves and He's He's pleased with you. In this identity we know that we're safe and secure, that we have enough. And so we don't need to work for safety and security, we can work from safety and security. In, in our identity as God's children, we know that we're loved, that God approves of us. He loves us. So we don't need to work for approval uh, from bosses, coworkers, or other moms on Facebook or, or whatever. We work from approval. In this identity, we know that, that, that we're valuable, that we're significant, that God is pleased with us. He delights in us. So I don't need to work for my worth to prove my significance. I can work out of my significance as a son of the Almighty God. This identity must be the organizing reality of our lives, the story that defines how we look at everything. It grounds our deepest needs in God and and prevents us from idolizing work, from making work do what only God can do. A key question here is, how do the things that I fill my hours with impact my awareness and my experience of my identity as God's child? So often, we, we grow up in a family that has a certain set of, of values or vision of what success looks like, or we, we grow up in a subculture, maybe in college, or we grow up in a church that, that, that heroicizes certain types of work or labor and so we kind of imbibe this unofficially prescribed specific vocation, only to realize that it, it drains our souls and feels like a constant struggle, and we, we find our hearts drifting further from God. For me, that was, that was kind of what the, the doctor path was for me. My, my dad is a doctor, and I feel like there we were just a lot of medical missionaries giving presentations in my church growing up, and I thought they were amazing. I thought they were, they, and they were wonderful people, uh, serving poor people with their skills. And I was like, yeah, I want to do that. I decided when I was eight, I want to do that. I want to be like my dad. I want to be like all these missionaries. That's what I'm going to do. Now, of course, being a doctor is a beautiful vocation, following Jesus as the great healer. And I just want to say, we have a lot of doctors here, and talking to you melts my heart. It is beautiful how you join Jesus in loving and serving people as doctors. But as I got into this career plan that I had picked up on when I was eight, I realized that I wanted to be a doctor because I realized I could meet all my needs without God. I could be a Christian and not need God through being a doctor. Like, I'd, be, I'd, be secu- I'd have security because I could make lots of money. I wouldn't need God to provide. I wouldn't need approval because being a doctor is respectable and people would, uh, would like me. And I'd feel significant because I was, like, making a difference. Like, someone was sick and now they're not. And I knew that I was, I was significant. And so being broken of that, for that, that I was in it for all the wrong reasons, was setting me free from this very anxious, stressed out, striving and crashing kind of pursuit of being a doctor. Are you aware of, your, of the effect of your work on your soul? Do you have space in your life to consider what kind of person is my work making me to become? Or if you're in college and you're considering careers, the lifestyle that different careers come with, Uh, Consider how will that lifestyle impact my ability to experience the objective fact of being God's beloved child? Someone I really respect uh, told me uh, not too long ago that uh, he realized early on, like coming out of college, that he could never work on commission. That if more time worked meant more money, knowing his heart and how he relates to money, it would just not be a good good recipe. And so he got a salaried job. <laughs> I mean, it's not a drastic move. It's not saying working on commission is bad. It was just saying knowing my heart, knowing what, what I think and feel about money, it's not going to be a good fit. The next level on our pyramid are the gospel implications on our lives, which to, to boil them down to two words is love and service. The greatest commandment Jesus says, so convenient. Our King says, this is the most important thing. He says, what? Love your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, the, and, the, and the, this is the great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We love because he first loved us. This is not a call to like muster up love deep from within our own resources or whatever. Uh, it, it's, it's an invitation to receive love from our Father And that love doesn't stay with us. We receive, we are blessed to be a blessing. We receive love, and then we respond in love towards him and to other people. And this brings us to service. Jesus shows a profound connection to how our identity as children of God plays out in service. In John 13, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And then down to verse 14, he's explaining, he's teaching his disciples what what he did and why he did it. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done for you. Jesus, knowing his identity as a son of God, secure in the hope that he was returning to God, was able to kneel down and clean disgusting feet. You heard that and what Reese said, he's like... They, Customers, like, want more and more stuff after the wedding. And, I, and, he, and he asks, does this matter in light of eternity? Can I be generous with the, these, these clients because of who God is and where I'm ending up? Out of our gospel identities, God's children, we follow Jesus in this downward ascent. Jesus' life was not marked by one promotion to another. Not saying promotions are bad, but it, it was marked by feet washing, Service, touching sick people, spending time with people that constantly weren't getting it, and ultimately dying for others. So how is my work, the things that I do with my minutes and hours of time on the earth, cultivating a heart of love for God and others and creating opportunities to serve other people the way Jesus did This could mean a a serious move. Maybe some here are grappling about needing to make a a, a serious change. I'm thinking of the Liddells, uh, some missionaries we sponsor in Peru. They left the comfort of the U.S. being able to play on our soccer team and raise kids by their grandparents to, to care for orphans, to love and serve orphans in Peru. This might look like taking a demotion or less money so you have more time to to tutor middle schoolers who just don't have anyone speaking a better word over their life. But it also might not mean a change. Seeing your current work through the lens of your identity as a child of God and the call to love and serve people around you like Jesus. I read about a mom of five kids who was just so burdened, living in this angst because she felt so limited to the degree that that she could go and be with poor people and serve poor people. She looked at how Jesus lived and the call of scripture to stay near to the poor and she just couldn't figure out how to do it. She couldn't figure out how to spend time in a soup kitchen because she had five hungry mouths in her own kitchen and there's a single guy in her church that lived very simply and worked among the poor with all his life and she's like, that, that is what I, I wish I could do. That's what, that's what Jesus would do. But then she realized what motherhood could be. When Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me a drink, I was naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you cared for me, like that is motherhood. So maybe nothing in how you spend the minutes and hours of your time on earth has to change. Instead, it can just be done prayerfully, serving the people around you like you're serving Jesus. From this foundational identity, we can begin considering actual jobs or activities. Like it doesn't have to be paid to be our vocation. Frederick Buchner says, uh, our calling, our vocation is where our deep gladness and the world great need meet. Uh, And and then something that we're able to gladly meet the need. A helpful framework for exploring uh, work is considering a a Venn diagram I got excited about and made. I don't know if that shows up. Uh, But it's where our joy... The world's need and our competence all overlap. Uh, so let's talk through these. These, these we'll go back to our pyramid, uh, starting with joy. Years ago, I was in a small, I was in a house church, small group gathering thing. We're on a circle, and one of the women's uh, like three-year-old daughter comes into the middle of the circle. We were kind of like done or not started yet, and she's playing with toys on the coffee table, in the circle of all of us. And the mom says, hey guys, watch this, watch this. And then she starts like dropping a beat, like boom, 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 and this girl, without looking up at all, just keep playing with her toys, just starts grooving. Just, just grooving, just feeling the beat. And the mom is like, look at that guy, she can't not dance. When the girl hears the beat, she's got to move. And for, it was just a sweet moment, uh, you know, like the, the family of God together. But for whatever reason, That phrase, she can't not dance, stuck in my head. It just embedded itself in my brain. And I think it's because while it might not be correct English, we all have our can't-nots. There are all things that we can't not do. It might not be dancing, clearly not for me. But I think the the can't-nots, like finding things you can't not do, is a great way to think about what our joy, our passion, our our, our gladness might be in discovering our our vocation. I was talking to a friend who had started a grad program to do something impressive, and that made money, and had ministry implications, but he was coming home to the fact that his can't-not was working with his hands. And he's good at it. And he serves his customers well. And it brings him joy. That's beautiful, you know, and I think, I mean, I think working with your hands is super cool, but maybe in the eyes of the world, like a master's degree in something, you know, more white collar is more impressive, but understanding our joy and just being secure in who we are and not needing the world's stamp of approval to do what we, we delight to do. And, we, and then we consider how our can't not, this joyful thing could be used to meet a need in the world. The neat aspect of discovering our, our vocation, if we go back to our pyramid, it's getting more narrow. It's like putting limits in. It's dialing it in. Because there might be a lot of things that we in, in, enjoy. Like, I, I love playing the guitar. I'd love to be a rock star. But, like, that's just, it, there's not a huge need for that right now. Um, and I'm not not super competent. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I've done ministry with college, college kids some, and uh, hopefully... The, this doesn't offend you, but I, I talk to guys like, wait, what are you about? What do you love? He's like, I love video games. I think I need to be a video game developer. Uh, maybe, maybe, you know, in, the, in God's economy, maybe. We, we need some gospel-centered video game uh, developers. But the question would be, what need is that meeting in the world? How are you serving people with that? Another question in this realm of need are like, what are the problems in the world that you just like can't forget? That you can't move past the things that are just not right, and you just like feel drawn to them. And how can uh, how can your joy meet that need? The thing you love to do meet that need. Next in the pyramid is competence. This puts another layer of limits on it. I would love to be a rock star, but it's probably not going to happen. Uh, this is such a powerful gospel application, like on the ground kind of thing because it is impossible to discover our vocation without being willing to ask honest questions about what we're really good at. What are we gifted to do? And the application of the gospel is that God will humble us on the journey to discovering our vocation. We'll see we'll see more and more specifically what we're good at and how small that list is, if you're like me. And and then the list of what I can't do that I'm not that good at will get bigger and bigger. It takes a deep embrace of my identity as a beloved child of God to say, I, there are things I'm not competent in. I cannot do that. Not because I'm an incompetent person, but because I have competencies elsewhere, and I don't have to try to fake it. It's so freeing to come home to the fact that we're just not good at some things, to put off external pressures and expectations that we may have accrued from different cultural influences in our lives. Oh Sure, there's, there's parts of every job that we don't like or that, are, that stretch us or require us to learn and develop or whatever, but does that part of our job need to be 50, 60, 80% of our work? Or are there jobs or positions that would allow 80% of our time to be spent in the can't-nots, in our competencies, even if that were to mean less money or a demotion or a change? Now now we're to the question, so how do we explore these things? What, what, are, what are some possible ways to explore our Venn diagram and what that sweet spot might be? That's the next thing in our pyramid. Uh, we figure this out in solitude and in community. You need both of these. It's like scissors. Like how much can you cut with only like one half of the scissors? In Parker Palmer's book, The Act of Life, he shares this ancient Chinese poem called The Woodcarver. And in the poem, it's a story poem, uh, a prince commissions the woodcarver to make a bell stand. And when it's done, the bell stand is so beautiful, so that it almost seems magical, otherworldly. And so the prince, in awe, visits the woodcarver, wanting to find the secret. And the woodcarver says, I'm only a workman. I have no secret. There is only this. When I began to think about the work you commanded, I guarded my spirit, did not expend it on trifles. That were not the point. I fasted in order to set my heart at rest. After three days of fasting, I'd forgotten praise or criticism. After seven days, all that might distract me from the work had vanished. I was collected in the single thought of the bell stand. Friends, there's so much noise in our lives, so much psychological junk food that can fill our brains, different visions of the good life that can clutter our hearts and minds and make it all but impossible to come home to our identity as God's beloved children and and hear from him specifically how he might be leading us to love and serve others in ways that give us joy. What I'm saying is this, you probably won't find your vocation in a hurried frazzled, distracted way of life. Slow time in God's word, in the quiet, letting a story shape your mind, cutting out distractions like news and social media that give you these competing narratives and muddy the water. I mean, like every time, this is a little bit embarrassing, every time I read the news, I want to go buy a farm and like form a commune or whatever. Like I'm not proud of it, but I will never buy a farm. Like I'm not called to be a farmer. I know that or whatever, but news makes me scared and I want to go produce my own food. Uh, it distracts me from what God has put right in front of me. And alongside the the solitude is meaningful community. Too much of either of these, uh, or one without the other, is going to lead to really wonky stuff. If we just are all alone, just thinking about whatever seems right to us, weird stuff happens. We need brothers and sisters who know us, know our story, know our strengths, know our weaknesses, and have loving, courageous conversations with you. Like, hey, I see your face light up when you talk about this thing or when you do this thing. You seem so gifted in this. What does it look like to pursue that? What does it look like to make those gifts a bigger part of your minutes and hours on the earth? And out of solitude and deep community, this didn't fit in the pyramid, just go try stuff. Like in the abundance of God's world and his care for your life as a beloved child, like just try things, start businesses, take other jobs, try switch industries. Like, I mean, you know, pay your bills. Don't like neglect, don't let your kids go hungry or whatever. But like we rarely discover our vocation like sitting still. I had to cut out so many stories from this sermon because I've had a ton of weird jobs. Uh, And and a lot of them were ones that I was terrible at or were just terrible fits. I was like super depressed, but they, they help me narrow it down. They help me come home to my strengths and weaknesses, my, my can't-nots and just the type of needs in the world that, I just, that I, I'm just drawn to, that I, just, I, I love to meet. And just to set our expectations appropriately, the, the old wise men that I pester into mentoring me say that uh, your, your 50s and 60s are probably going to be the most fruitful, joyful years of your work when you have enough experience and humility to focus your work and hit that convergence where all of those meet. The time horizon for the vocational journey is decades with many different pit stops and attempts. Hear the grace in that. Hear the abundance of being a part of of God's family where there's no lack. In Jesus, we're, we're called out of darkness, out of the futility of thinking our work must satisfy us and make us feel lovable and valuable and safe. And in Jesus, all the pain, all the destruction that we have experienced and that we inflict on others as we try to make work do the things that only God can do has been washed away on the cross. And in Jesus, we're, we're sons and daughters of God. All the riches of God in the heavenly places are available to us as his children, and we can, from that place, join God in the story of redemption. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I praise you for uh, just the the beauty of your creation, your design for us as humans, that you created us uh, to work, to join. Like a loving father, you love to see your children uh, participate and do things and try things and explore uh, explore how they can join you in, in your work of making all things new and redeeming all things. Father, I pray that we'd be a church that uh, just feels the freedom to explore this topic of vocation, secure in our gospel identity. I pray that it would be uh, just a, a joy to walk together as brothers and sisters, helping each other come home to our giftings uh, and, and our can't-nots, and, and we would see through our, our meager efforts you, you blessing them to meet needs in the world. Father, I pray against any uh, sense of shame or condemnation, any fear of getting it wrong, that this would just feel like a loving Father inviting, inviting us to come play, to come join the family business. Thank you for Jesus. In his name, amen.